We don't even have to rewrite this intro. Another week, another Trump indictment. I know we just said that the last one was the most important, but we've changed our minds. We'll talk about why this Georgia case is truly a unique threat to Trump. Then Hunter Biden's plea deal fell apart as U.S. Attorney David Weiss was granted special counsel status to continue that investigation. What do these developments mean for the president and his campaign? Finally, Trump, DeSantis, and much of the rest of the GOP field have spent quality time this week in Iowa. We'll break down the cringiest moments from their campaign appearances. And before we start the show, we've been fortunate enough to acquire a whole lot of new viewers and listeners here lately, so it's a good time for a fresh explainer about this show. Let's start with the title, Majority 54. In the past few elections, about 54% of Americans have regularly voted for progress, and the purpose of this show is to serve the people who are a part of that progressive American majority, but have people close to them in their lives who are not. I'm an Army vet from Kansas City and the former Secretary of State of Missouri, and I even kind of ran for president for a minute. And Ravi has worked on and won hundreds of progressive campaigns in red states, including as part of both the Obama campaign and the Obama administration. And we both believe that the best way to expand the progressive majority is for you to find ways to keep your relationships with your Trump-loving friends from high school or your conservative brother and, in the process, even bring some of them along to our side. We think talking politics with people from work or school or your husband's family is the surest way for all of us to expand that 54%. So every week, Ravi and I go through the news and give you tips on how we think you should approach those conversations. So here we go. This is Majority 54. All right, Trump. Trump. Jason. Oh, man. Uh, slip. Uh, <laughs> so it's on my mind. I can't get rid of this guy. Yeah, no. I was actually in uh, LaGuardia Airport. Uh, getting, I got there and I was about to fly to Maine and basically was getting prodded. All right, you got to do a reaction podcast on this Georgia case. So I wound up slipping into a phone booth and doing a 15 minute explainer at LaGuardia airport. <laughs> that was in at my Pacino, just when I thought it was out, they pulled me back in moment. And honestly, <laughs> like that intro, I know we said that the last case was the most important, but actually this one is most the the most important, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is there there are more defendants involved. So there are 19 defendants uh, in this case, including notably Rudy Giuliani um, and Mark Meadows. And so just like the sheer quantity of defendants, the uh, the possibility of people flipping on each other, the conspiracy element, which we'll talk about. But most, the, the, I think the, the most important feature of this case is where it takes place, which is in Georgia. And this is that makes this the most threatening case against Trump because, number one, you can't, uh, you can't shut down an investigation when you become president if it's a state investigation. So these lawyers don't report to him. But most importantly, you can't pardon for a state crime. So unlike in other states, such as New York, clemency isn't up to the uh, governor in Georgia. Uh, and so uh, the state constitution has a board of pardons and paroles with five members who are confirmed by the governor and um, appointed by the governor, confirmed by the Senate, and they, they run staggered seven-year terms. Uh, and the fine print here, Jason, is really interesting for the pardon application. It says, people convicted of crimes will be considered only if the applicant has completed his or her full sentence obligation, including serving any probated sentence and paying any fine. It has been free of supervised and or criminal involvement for at least five consecutive years thereafter, <laughs> as well as five consecutive years immediately prior to applying. It also says they cannot have any pending charges. Jason, you think that might be an issue for Trump if he seeks a pardon eventually? As I said uh, on another show, uh, given the fact that he's about to be in court more than Sam Waterston, uh, you know, which is, I don't know, you got to watch a lot of Law and Order to get that joke. But, but I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, that yeah, he's going to have a problem with that no other charges part. I mean, not to mention the fact that you're talking about a board that is originally appointed by Brian Kemp, which, though a Republican, is not exactly a guy appointing probably a lot of like super pro Trump people. Uh, so I think that'll be a problem. Yeah. Yeah, this judge is interesting too. He's thirty-four years old. Does that make you feel old, Jason? It's like it does. It's like when you're looking at these professional athletes who are younger than you. Like now the uh, now the judges is, are younger than us too. Yeah, um, that's right. That's so right. It's, like, it's just gonna get worse from here. Let's actually go to Willis uh, announcing these charges because she was fairly clear in this announcement what this was all about and got right to the heart of this this conspiracy today. 
based on information developed by that investigation, a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. The indictment includes 41 felony counts and is 97 pages long. So the sort of elements of this are one lying to the Georgia state legislature, lying to state officials, creating fake pro-Trump electors, harassing election workers, soliciting Justice Department officials, soliciting Vice President Pence, breaching vote machines, and engaging in a cover-up. 161 separate actions, the prosecutor said, were taken to further this conspiracy. She's, you know, as she mentioned, there are 41 counts. 22 of those are related to forgery or false documents and statements. Uh, eight related to soliciting or impersonating, impersonating public officers. Impersonating public officers, by the way. Wow. Uh, three related yeah, to witnesses. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. You know, <laughs> three related to election fraud and defrauding the state. Three related to computer tampering. So these are pretty tangible crimes. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff where, like, there's paperwork, right? I mean, oh. literally, like forging like that means there's paperwork right like it yeah. either you either forged it or you didn't um i i thought it might be helpful for us to do two things here uh for people who are going to end up talking about this with people in their life which is one talk about what racketeering is real quick and two uh and i'm going to give the simplest explanation i can uh and and then two anticipate some of what they're going to hear about um, Fannie Willis. So mm -hmm. one on racketeering, I mean, the simplest explanation I can give of racketeering is is basically just that it is running a racket. Uh, that's the root word, right? I mean, it, it's organized crime. I mean, the, the RICO statutes were created to go after the mob and organized crime. And actually, Fannie Willis has been really... Uh, I don't even want to say creative, I would say innovative um, as a prosecutor well before she was the elected prosecutor, just as a as a line, a line prosecutor in the office about using it in gang cases, using it uh, in all sorts of situations, using it in one instance with um, school officials uh, who had been involved in a in a cheating scandal regarding standardized test scores. Uh, and And so it's not new for her to use it in something that might not be directly considered like your typical organized crime situation but that's what racketeering is that's where a lot of this comes from and then the other thing i just wanted to let people know like i think you're about to hear a lot of stuff about this prosecutor um and i think you know i was looking through her background and one thing we haven't heard much yet in the mainstream i'm sure it's been all over you know truth social or whatever but i think you're about to hear a lot more often is that her father was a black panther now that's not relevant to this at all uh, or even necessarily like bad um, but I think you're about to hear it very very often and I wanted to call it out now because that's what we do on the show is say like here's the distractions that they're about to throw at you mm -hmm. yeah the, the you know who else was innovative in the use of uh, racketeering statutes which we call RICO statutes Jason mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking Rudy Giuliani yes sir well <laughs> you know as a Staten Islander we were very familiar with this because he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and he was a heroic figure in New York at the time. This is before he was mayor. He was known as the guy who took on the mafia. And you can watch Fear City, which is a, a docu-series on Netflix, which I think does a pretty good job of talking about the origins of these RICO statutes, racketeering statutes, and actually how there was this like little-known Cornell professor who basically looked at the um, the existing... RICO law on the books that hadn't been used at the time and basically was, you know, went to federal prosecutors in the 80s and said, hey, you could use this to bring down the mafia, which is what they did precisely. Uh, and so, and Giuliani was at the lead of that. Now he is the target of a RICO uh, indictment, which is insane. Uh, he's also apparently broke, Jason. There's been a story, uh, a number of stories in the past 24 hours about he's struggling to pay his legal bills. There also was a story in uh, CNBC yesterday that Trump stiffed Giuliani on a bill for Giuliani's work for Trump. Now, shocking. I, I mean, it's <laughs> unreal. I tried to make sense of all of his bills 
and it was really hard to make sense of. He's paying like these services to host his cell phone that was seized, and he's paying for uh, Georgia, like some of these Georgia election workers that he defamed. Um, he's had to pay penalties to them. I mean, he has a really like extensive set of legal bills, and uh, I think like I could see him flipping, like with all oh, yeah. of this, you know. Well, I mean, he, he I would, would know more than anybody what Trump was asking him to do. You know, he was probably the one on the phone with Trump. I mean, in fact, I think in many cases he was the one coming up with some of the bad ideas. Yeah. Uh, so I think for sure. Also, you know, it's just kind of interesting to look back and think about the the course that Giuliani's life has taken, and that there was after he was not elected, after he didn't get the nomination, like there was a pretty standard off ramp, right? Go be a guy who gets involved in things you care about. You don't actually have to sign up with the demagogue and and go full whatever uh, with Trump. But he chose to. And like, it's just such a different path that dude's life could have taken. Um, and now he's I just wonder if he's going to get to a point where he goes, you know what? Uh, I got I don't actually want to go to prison. And I mean, he's an older guy. Like, he's got to say, like, I don't actually want to die in prison. Um, and so. I would really think that there's a high chance of that. I would also think that there's a pretty decent chance that Mark Meadows is cooperating because we haven't heard anything from Mark Meadows and he is definitely not subscribing to the whole I'm going to litigate my case in public uh, sort of strategy that so many others in the Trump world uh, have. So Worth underscoring, Jason, the, the chances of a flip here are much higher, not just because it's a conspiracy case, but because... Trump can't dangle pardons to any of these mm -hmm. people. So right. it, like the pardons are not just a problem for Trump directly, but it's a problem for him in keeping everybody organized and behind him. Uh, and so this is a real issue for I, I mean, I want to take a step back and say it's wild that this is how we talk about the president of the United States and that he is, he's, he's accused of being the leader of a criminal, uh, a, a multi-state criminal conspiracy. I mean, it, it. I know that every week brings new ground with Trump. But this is, I would say this is the wildest turn of any of these indictments. It is the wildest turn. And yet at the same time, I feel like this is the case that makes it easiest to help people in your life see Trump in the proper light. And here's what I mean, is that, you know, every, uh, all the federal indictments are you know, they're going to become like blue versus red, right? When you have these conversations, it's it's the stuff that Trump says It's well, Biden's going after me because of politics, etc. But given the fact that this is a RICO case, it is an organized crime prosecution. It allows you, I think, to step back and say, well, can we talk about who Donald Trump actually is? Like take Donald Trump, the politician out of it. This is a guy who came up in the New York real estate world, going boom and bust, then got into casinos, then got into, right? Like, is it really at all shocking that at the end of the day, so many of these accusations against Trump, though they are in a political or a governing context, uh, they're actually just like painting him as what he's probably always been, which is like, a guy who's cutting corners and dealing with unsavory characters and encouraging people to break the law so that he can make a profit. It's just that in this case, the profit is political. And, and so like at the end of the day, I just think this reveals that he's always been an aspiring mob boss and he just finally found a mob uh, that would follow him. Do you understand? So I, I've been hearing people, I mean, the Trump arguments are relatively standard and, and, almost identical to the last case. First Amendment, uh, he, you know, there's no evidence that he directly committed the crimes. Although I want to remind people that this whole investigation started because he's on audio tape asking for a particular amount of votes. But... Um, an, but an amount that amounted to enough to give him a one-vote victory. <laughs> unbelievable. Anyway. Uh, the... <laughs> but... They're arguing one a couple of arguments. One is why did it take you so long? I'm not sure exactly what that does for them. Uh two is I'm starting to hear that this should be a federal case and that they're gonna try to get this transferred to federal because there's multi state how does that work? I, I didn't realize you can get a state case transferred I'm to federal. Well, if it's a, I, like I think if it's a federal question, right, you can, mm -hmm. you can, you can argue that it should be, and, and that's what Meadows is doing, which I think, I think Meadows is the one who, who's moved for that, which is interesting, which I also find interesting because it means that Meadows is 
for the most part, not under the umbrella of people who Trump is paying for their uh, for their their defense. Right. Which, again, leads yep. me to feel like a guy who's been very quiet, who also did cooperate somewhat um, with uh, with the, the congressional investigation, uh, maybe cooperating or, or maybe looking to. Uh, oh, so Brett helpfully so. pointed out that if Meadows successfully moves the Georgia case to federal court, it's still Fannie Willis's office that prosecutes and is still tried under Georgia state laws, and a, a conviction still can't be pardoned. But I guess the advantage to them would be he's trying to get the draw of a oh. Trump-appointed judge. Uh, and I think part of it has to and, do with the timing of this case, because- And I oh, would say most likely, uh, the way federal jurisdictions work, I bet it also gives you a much wider draw on your jury pool, so that your jury pool probably comes from that yeah. federal district as opposed to you know the county that has elected uh, the county trial uh, court. Hmm. And this, and is, a, this like is a blue county, regular Georgia, and the you know? the other piece. I don't know what regular Georgia means, but you know what I mean. Georgia beyond Atlanta is is what they're looking for for jurors. Right. Yeah, I think uh, the other issue here is Willis. I think I think intends to try. Uh, I'm hearing that intends to try the 19 defendants together. I don't know how that's going to work. She also said that it's going to happen within six months. I don't think that's possible um, with this many defendants and this complex of a case. But I'll be fascinated to see her try. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that feels very fast. Obviously, like we want swift justice here, but that that seems tough. Um, this, yeah, I I mean, this is another one of those cases where this thing could bleed right into the very end of this election, and I think this one in particular is this one might be on TV. I'm hearing, um, like this oh one might God. be. I didn't. Televised. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Brett might know better than we do at this point. But I'm hearing claims mm -hmm. that, in fact, yeah, he said yes. Um, I'm hearing those claims, which obviously would be great for the, the Midas network. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> could you imagine 19 defendants on the, uh, in the dock, like, and including Giuliani and Meadows and Trump in court in the middle of an election season? Oh, my God. Some of which are going to testify. I mean, you're going to have Giuliani in there with his hair running down his back. You know, the, the whatever that stuff is he puts in there. And like, I mean, that's going to be like how many different limited series will be made about this when we're in our 60s? Like, I, I, I mean, one for like every possible defendant. I mean, they're right? churning these things out really fast. The the Depp Heard documentary is already out. I mean, they're, they're, they do these things so fast. I just logged on to Netflix yesterday and it was already, it popped up. Uh, yeah. I'm like, this this is like record timing. Um, so, okay. Uh, the, I think before we move on any of this stuff, I think, um, I think we need to revisit our power rankings here. Um, oh, right. I think this one goes to the top now. I think I go this one number Our one. Our power rankings of Trump indictments. Yeah, meaning yeah. most threatening to him, I think being the most important um, standard. Mm -hmm. I think this is number one. I think the last, uh, the, the election interference DC one, even though I think they have less dead to rights than number three, which is the Miami case. I think the Miami jury and judge make that number three for me. And then I'd put Bragg a very, very, very distant fourth. Um, even though that's a state level crime and, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just think that that one is just not as threatening. I don't know. Although that one well, can't be pr pardoned either. Yeah. I mean, that's why you've got to believe that, that I, I think I agree with you that this goes to, this goes to number one in terms of the most threatening because he, there is no scenario under which he, the only scenario under which he gets out of a conviction is if there is some real stretch of a legal argument uh, or uh, made by an appellate court, ultimately the Georgia Supreme Court, uh, right? Yeah. Like that's the only way is if that at some point, which is I, without having looked at all of it, it's conceivable that, uh, that I suppose if there were a very partisan makeup of a Georgia Supreme Court, that they could look at the use of the RICO statute here and do something that they've clearly never done in any of the other convictions that she's done under the RICO statute and say, well, this didn't actually apply and just try and, you know, that'd be, that'd be the really the only escape hatch because even 
even like another Republican president can't mm-hmm. like he doesn't have to win um, another like you could because uh, there's a world in which um, he's the nominee and he wins and he and he pardons himself. There's a world in which he loses the nomination and another Republican wins and is made to pardon him from all these things. And then there's a world in which he or somebody else is the nominee, but Biden wins reelection. But then in four years, they get, uh, you know, you get a Republican president who ends up having to pardon him, in which case maybe he does some prison time, maybe he doesn't. Like those are the only scenarios, but none of those actually apply to this case. So yeah, yeah. I think it shoots actually, to it, the top. I'd put fifth the Milwaukee case. No, I was just kidding. I was just going to see if I could slip through a case. I, I, I was exist. absolutely like, <laughs> that totally worked because I was like, I see what did he do in Milwaukee? <laughs> I'm sure he did something. I just wanted to yeah, see it. Right. If he's ever visited Milwaukee, yeah, see if yes. you're tracking these things. But uh, uh, yeah, that totally worked because I was like, why, why am I not remembering the Milwaukee case? <laughs> well, one last thing here is I think it's I think what people are going to get treated to now is a uh, a series of arguments about the RICO statute when you talk about what Trump's people are going to be doing here. Because these statutes at, at the federal level, they've been subject to a lot of litigation because people have... Um, concerns, and I think it's a really fascinating debate about whether they're overbroad, that they're vague, that they have double jeopardy concerns, First Amendment issues, Tenth Amendment issues, and there've been a, there's been a ton of back and forth over whether these are constitutional or not. And one thing you're gonna you you can bank on is that uh, these right wing figures are quickly gonna be fashioning themselves RICO experts now and arguing that these statutes shouldn't exist, uh, which you know. Like, th- these types of statutes exist because of law and order Republicans, mostly, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, so, a lot of them yeah. were used initially to prosecute organized crime that had penetrated organized labor, which is ha- yeah. a real good indication that you know that Republicans have been fond of these for a long time, right? When you think back right. uh, to what, a, you know, the, there have been at times uh, cases where, particularly I think in New York and Chicago, where the mafia was very tied into organized organized labor and that's where so yeah all of a sudden republicans will be a, you know but it, it but republicans who are also very quick to uh try and conflate in the american mind organized crime and organized labor like they genuinely want you to believe that the person who shows up to organize a workplace of like nurses is like a mobster right, <laughs> right? um yeah, it doesn't surprise me that they would, much like they have abandoned their opposition to Russia. Well, you are from that. Kansas City, where apparently the KC mob. Uh, that was a thing. Historically, was a was very tight with labor. I'm reading a great uh, book Obviously, about not it right anymore. Now. Okay, so uh, let's actually shift to, to Hunter. So uh, Merrick Garland made a, a pretty big announcement. Um, that I think. Oh, actually, wait before most... we before we go to oh, Hunter, yeah. can we talk about this Trump report that he's putting out? Oh yeah, I forgot uh, about for that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, go ahead, Trump lay into said, it. Yeah, he he said he's going to release a large, complex, detailed but irrefutable report, which is in all caps, on the presidential election fraud which took place in Georgia, uh, and he's going to do this 11 a.m. on Monday of next week in Bedminster. This is what he said on Truth Social. Uh, mm-hmm. do you, uh, do you think this is a good strategy? <laughs> I think it's a strategy. I think it's a Trump type strategy. It's made me think of two things. Uh, one that is kind of silly and, and personal. And then one that is less silly, but still personal. Um, okay. So thing one is, so you and I both went to law school, but you had the good fortune to never really practice law. And I practiced law for, for, a few years. And I can remember um, there being many times when like I was putting together like a large legal brief full of arguments and, and it would just get too big. Right. And my, and I remember like one of the lawyers I worked for would come in and I would take over an entire conference room and I would have like, it was like a, you know, a beautiful mind in there. Right. I had like note cards <laughs> up everywhere and like I would take over the whole table and none of it would make sense, but it would make sense in my brain. And I would put together like this 50, 60 page brief. I I hated doing this stuff, but when I would do it, I would just lean all the way in. And then I would file it thinking like, I'm going to blow this judge's mind. And then it would just like denied. Like it was like, (laughs) you know, because I would get so deep into my own arguments and ideas that I would completely sometimes lose touch with like the idea that like, 
I was just going too deep in, into uh, into my argument. And I think there's a part of that here. And that's not Trump. I think that's this Liz Harrington, the the staffer that is putting this together. I just picture her in a room with note cards citing crazy stuff that crazy people have said. And she's gotten so deep into building this thing that I believe that she truly believes that this is going to do exactly what Trump is saying, which is cause everybody to be like, oh my God, we got it all wrong. This is the big twist at the end. Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. You know, like that level of, sorry if I just spoil the movie for, it's, you've had plenty of time, people. <laughs> um, but that level of twist, and I think she probably in her mind believes that all these charges are going to be dropped and there's going to be apologies. That's the first thing that makes me laugh. The second thing is the Trump side of this, which is this reminds me quite a lot of after Trump won in 2016, when he took office in 2017, one of the first things he did was he wanted to you know, attack American democracy as he has been doing for many years. And so he tried to dress it up, like church it up in official sounding and looking procedures and names. And so he created, I don't know what they called it, but it was like the Voter Integrity Commission. And if you remember, Chris Kobach, the then Secretary of State, oh, yeah. now Attorney General actually of Kansas, um, was was made to chair the thing. And uh, and I, at that time, um, I and uh, Abe Rakov, who, um, who worked for me on, on all things political, we went to, uh, Tom Perez, who was the chair of the DNC, and we were like, we need a commission that will counter this commission because it's going to seem really legit. It's a presidential commission on voter fraud. And so I remember uh, Tom Perez was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, you know, he said, Jason, you'll chair it. What do you want to call it? And we were like, we want to call it the Commission to Protect American Democracy from the Trump administration. And he was like, don't you think that's a little <laughs> on the nose? And I was like, I was like, well, I think that's the thing is you got to be on the nose. And so that's what we did. And basically it was like, it was several people who you would know were on it, like Cory Booker and Alex Padilla, who's now a Senator was secretary of state then and people like that. And we, uh, basically when, when Kobach would do his thing, we would show up and like do our thing and protest and stuff. And I think the Kobach commission only ended up having two meetings because nobody would cooperate with it. But my point is, because it was such a dog and pony show. My point is like, this is what Trump does. Like, I think Liz Harrington really believes that she's putting together this smoking gun, you know, argument. And I think Trump is like, look, this is what we do. We say things that are legit are not legit. And we make it seem very official when we do so. And I think this is the mm. same move. Uh, I think it might be a problem with some of these cases, though. Yeah, it, by the way, you remind me of that. Remember that the interstate compact that we were talking about uh, from the states uh, to protect the vote, like vo the sharing information for voter fraud um, yeah. prosecutions and stuff that the Republican states pulled out of? I was just reading an article the other day that um, Republican states are flailing now to try to tamp down on voter fraud because they just, they don't, they're not part of that commission. It's so crazy. Uh, okay. All right. Let's talk about Hunter. Uh, Garland made this big announcement. Uh, late last week on Friday. Let's go to this clip. In a July 2023 letter to Congress, Mr. Weiss said that he had not to that point requested special counsel designation. On Tuesday of this week, Mr. Weiss advised me that in his judgment, his investigation had reached a stage at which he could, should continue his work as a special counsel, and he asked to be so appointed. Upon considering his request, as well as the extraordinary circumstances relating to this matter, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint him as special counsel. This appointment confirms my commitment to provide Mr. Weiss all the resources he requests. It also reaffirms that Mr. Weiss has the authority he needs to conduct a thorough investigation and to continue to take the steps he deems appropriate independently, based only on the facts and the law. So. Uh, this is fascinating for a number of reasons. One is that um, the two star witnesses at the Hunter Biden hearings recently were these IRS agents uh, who um, their big claim was that Merrick 
Garland, that uh, Weiss, who's the uh, U.S. attorney for Delaware, who's a Trump appointed U.S. attorney, who's been kept on to keep this investigation we, going. We should we should point out these are at the congressional hearings, not in the congressional court proceedings. Hearings. Yeah, yeah. C- congressional hearings. They had these IRS agents show up who said that, among other things, that Weiss had sought special counsel status and was denied or told he wasn't going to get it. And then Weiss quickly clarified, hey, no, actually, I have not sought special counsel status, which makes him even more independent. Like he's, he's, he was by all accounts independent anyway, but it makes him fully like, you know, walled off from everybody at this point now. And uh, so Weiss clarified, he was like, look, I haven't sought special counsel status. And if I did, I would get it. And now he's gotten it. I think Mm -hmm. this happens also as Hunter's plea deal has fallen apart, which I find really puzzling if you read the details in this. Basically, it seems like the prosecutors and the defense were arguing slash bickering in front of the judge who was asking sort of pointed questions about to Hunter's team about whether they they believed that the deal that they struck would make them immune from future prosecution and apparently didn't, but the defense thought it did. It seems like a huge mess. Um, obviously, like this is a a clear uh, one of many clear pieces of evidence that the Biden administration is going by the book and walling this off and doing all the proper things. Uh, the right wing is like perplexingly up in arms about this now. I, I don't exactly know exactly what they want, but they'd been calling for this and now they don't want it. I don't know. It, it makes no sense. But I would say this is a bit of a mess, both from Hunter's side of things with his attorneys and whatever's going on between them and the prosecutors. I'd also say, Jason, like, I think the White House needs to tighten up on this kind of stuff. Like, we could go through it, but they've they've made like some contradictory statements, but some that have been contradicted by Hunter, some that are contradicted by things that we just know from the public record. Biden has gotten really defensive and sparred with reporters about this kind of stuff, including like reporters who are just asking basic questions about this. I get that it's his son and I get that he's sensitive to this, but I, I don't think Biden himself has anything to hide. Um, and so I think they should they should get a little bit more buttoned up and organized about this because this thing ain't going away. I have to imagine this is a super hard thing for the very reason you mentioned to get buttoned up about, right? Like, imagine yeah. you're working for Biden, right? Um, look, we you don't have to know Biden personally to understand how he feels about his family and particularly the way, you know, the tragedy that has taken place on more than one occasion with his family, like how, how you know, deeply uh, he feels about that sort of thing and how sensitive all that is. But like I've I've talked to, you know, President Biden before he was president about Bo and about his family. And like he like when you talk to him about those things, he it's different than the public persona. He he slows down. He's even more, you know, it's not like oftentimes with Joe Biden, um, there is this very charming folksy nature. But also you do hear the same things over and over again, right? So mm-hmm. so it can tend to be like, okay, I get it. That's sort of the persona. And you get below the persona and he he talks in the way a father talks about his children and, and his family. And so imagine you're working in the White House and you have to address this kind of thing as like, hey, we really need to be thought, we need to be um, really uh, reticent to address any of this and we can't, we can't get our back up about it. We can't be offended. like. Who in the White House is going to go tell a father that, right? Like somebody uh, yeah. obviously is, they but have that's to. a very difficult yeah. thing to do. And and so I just I'm no I'm only saying it to say I sympathize with both Biden and with the staff and having to deal with something like this yeah. that is as you said, not in any way because of the president's doing, um but it's yeah. but the Republicans are working very hard to make it seem like it is. Yeah, you know, there are, there are a couple of missteps here that I think are just 101 type of stuff on this. And again, like, I, it is understandable that he'd be sensitive about his son, et cetera. But uh, number one, don't snap at reporters who are asking questions. Uh, I think two is don't answer for your son. Like, he's he's at various points answered questions about who got paid by what. There is one inter- interaction that, you know, when I was in my debate with Ricky uh, about this, um, G understandably threw it back in my face, which was Biden basically going line by line with the reporter saying, oh, we didn't know Biden, including my son, received money from X, Y, and Z. And it turns out that that wasn't even exactly accurate. It wasn't, it wasn't inaccurate because Joe Biden took any money, which he would know, but his son did. 
And the Biden shouldn't be answering questions for his son anymore. Let his son answer, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think I was thinking a lot about this and I was thinking about like how we could be helpful to listeners. And I think it's about how not to respond to this stuff. Right. So like mm -hmm. when because Hunter Biden is going to come up uh, a fair amount. Right. Yeah. This thing uh, ain't going away. We know this. I mean, they're going to talk about this. I mean, heck, they talked about it in the midterms and Biden wasn't on the ballot. Um, so we know that's that's what is going to happen. Um, so. I think the first thing I could say is how not to respond, which is, I don't think it, and this is most people's first instinct, but I don't think it does much good to compare Hunter Biden to Jared Kushner, or to compare Hunter Biden to Donald Trump Jr., or to compare to Ivanka, because I think that's what the Republicans want, and that's what Trump world wants, because as we know, like, there is the idea of the Biden crime family is an invented concept, right? Um, but they want it to be real. And the surest way to make it feel real is to equate the two. Because the thing is, like, a lot of Republican voters, whether they say it out loud or not, they, they agree or they at least acknowledge that Trump doesn't always stay on the right side of the law and that his family doesn't stay on the right side of the law, but they've decided that they've baked that in and they've either justified it or they've accepted it and decided, well, I like what he did with this or I like the way he hurts the people I want hurt or whatever it is. Right. So when, when, you, when you compare the two, even though the comparison is beyond apples and oranges, they're completely separate, once you're comparing them, now you're doing what they want, which is you're muddling them and you're making them both the same. And politics is the only world where that can so easily be done, right? You can take two things that have nothing to do with one another, but because people have such a deep cynicism about politicians, if you just put two things in the same sentence, now they're the same. Right. Uh, and, and so I think people have to be careful not to fall into that trap. Yeah. Well, okay, we're going to take a break uh, and that, hear from our sponsors. When we come back, well, we're going to break yeah. down. Oh, sorry, Jason. Um, well, when we come back, we're going to no, give no, you the no, final no, word fine. on this. I don't have anything. And then, and, and then we're going to uh, hit the trail uh, and we're going to check in um, with some of our favorite and not so favorite GOP candidates who spent some time down in Iowa. Uh, all that and more when we get back. Sleep is super important, uh, especially if you really like to be active and you got a lot going on. Uh, if you get a bad night's rest, you'll know that it'll weigh on you throughout the day. It affects everything that you do. And on the flip side, if you have an amazing night's rest, everything comes easy to you throughout the day. And we don't think enough about our sleep. Like back in the day, you just kind of go to the mattress store and there's just like a one size fits all mattress. But with Helix, you can take a sleep quiz. It takes almost no time and they'll fit you to a mattress that's right for you. I have the Midnight Lux mattress because I like a medium feel and I sleep on my side. And you know, Helix, they know everybody's unique. Everybody sleeps differently. And so they have different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. And not only is the mattress that I have the best I've ever had, but it was super fast and easy. They deliver it right to your house in a box, straight to your door for free. So go ahead, Go take that sleep quiz and you can find the per perfect mattress for you in under two minutes. Uh, and if you don't take my word for it, Helix Sleep has over 12,000 five-star reviews. I'm a little jealous. Go out there and give five-star reviews for this podcast. I want us to get to 12,000. I'm jealous of Helix. But uh, by supporting Helix, you're allowing them to support our show. So go out there, purchase your Helix mattress. You can thank me later. They're offering... 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. It's 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So this summer, you could spend thousands of dollars on planes, hotels, and tourist traps, or you could spend less money on a beautiful garden that will give you years of pleasure with fastgrowingtrees.com. Fastgrowingtrees.com has thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties expertly curated for your unique climate and needs, from Meyer lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around. With fastgrowingtrees.com, you can order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. If you don't have a green thumb, no problem. Fastgrowingtrees.com. 
Plant experts are just a Zoom chat or phone call away, always available, eager to help. They can even walk you through your entire garden to help solve problems you're having with plants and trees. And look, like you don't even have to have a house or a backyard. I have an apartment in Brooklyn and I just moved there and I used one of the fast growing trees experts and I was like, here's, you know, I showed them my lighting situation. I know nothing about plants because I grew up in the city and I was like, hey, what should I get for this apartment? Now I've got a whole bunch of plants all over my apartment. I even have a tree inside my apartment uh, because of fast growing trees and their experts. It's really amazing. It totally livened up the place. So, uh, Go to fastgrowingtrees.com. They have a 30-day alive and thrive guarantee. And you know, everything will look great, fresh out of the box, but that guarantee will help you if something happens. But join almost 2 million happy fast-growing trees customers. That's a lot of people. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash 54 now to get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% at fastgrowingtrees.com slash 54. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash five four. All right, Ravi, uh, I gave what not to do uh, in the Hunter Biden thing when talking to people. And then I kind of forgot to give the second half before we went to the ad, which is like what I think we should do. So let me do that real quick because I didn't want to leave people hanging. Uh, I think there's two things here. One, I think it's important to empathize and humanize the situation. When someone brings this up, I think you just got to come from a human perspective. And I know I've said this before, but you got to come from a human perspective and be like, look, uh, you know, from what I can tell, there is no evidence whatsoever of Joe Biden doing anything improper. But I think the important part of this is you cannot, in order to do this strategy, you cannot like defend Hunter Biden at all costs. Because like clearly Hunter Biden has done some things wrong and you have to you have to say this. And 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 you, I think, did this in your, in your debate with Ricky. You have to say, look, this is a guy who's had a lot of trauma in his life. You know, he, we all know what happened when he was very young, losing his mother, losing his sister. And then when he was older, the person closest to him, his, his older brother, then, then died of brain cancer. Like he's been through a lot of stuff that doesn't excuse his behavior, but it's not, ab, it's not out of the ordinary for people who've been through a lot to turn to things like substance. And that's what happened. And now he's struggling with that. And like a lot of people who struggle with that, uh, with with addiction, it has led to other behavior that he's that he's certainly not proud of, and that his father father may not be proud of, but but remain but his father remains a loving father, and it's like I think you got to empathize with that situation. Whoever you're talking to, if you know them well enough, you might even be able to reference someone you know, or even even something that's gone on in their family, and say it seems like a really difficult situation, and. You know, I, clearly it's not anything that rises to the president's level other than he's his dad. I think that's the first thing. And then the second part is you got to go right from there. to you got to pivot to what actually affects people's lives. And this is the difference between what Trump is doing uh, with all of the accusations against him and what Biden does with the occasional much less numerous accusations against him, which is it, what Biden always does is he's like, OK, here's, you know, Yes, that's the accusation. He'll pivot away from it and then he'll he'll talk about what's going on in the lives of everyday Americans. And that's what you've got to do, because at the end of the day, people are not going to people who are leaning toward voting for Trump or a Republican in the next election are not ultimately going to come around and vote for Biden because they figure out that they don't like Trump or they don't like the Republicans who have supported Trump. They that if that was going to happen, it would have happened years ago. When they come around, it's because they don't like the extreme positions on abortion or because they don't like uh, the idea of their health care being taken away or they don't, you know, any of these sorts of things. So you you make the statement that concedes that there's clearly been some bad behavior by Hunter. You empathize with the situation and then you talk about, look, you know, I don't know about all that stuff. Let me tell you why I can't support Trump. And then don't make it about Trump's behavior. Make it about the things that Trump and the Republicans stand for. That's yeah. my two cents. Well, amen to that. Uh, Jason, let's pop down to uh, Iowa. Uh, you know, we're at that place now where the candidates are spending uh, basically as much time as possible down in Iowa. And although Trump is trouncing the rest of the field nationally, it's a bit narrower in Iowa. He's still got a pretty sizable lead, but it's narrower in Iowa in part because it's a smaller state. A lot of his opponents are spending all of their time down there where he, as Trump, you know, as we have made clear, is pretty distracted by other matters. Uh, but Iowa also, these voters, I, I, I was down there for the Obama campaign in 2007 and 2008. They really value their place 
as the voters who get to quote unquote select the president, right? They want to mm-hmm. go first. They 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 have a little bit of ego about it. Uh, and uh, in this case, the, Trump's opponents, I think, largely think that this is their last stand. A lot of them, like if they don't, if they can't beat him in Iowa, it's hard to imagine them beating him at all. And uh, Trump, I think, well, has taken notice. He, he get went beat down to in Iowa, Iowa in sixteen. Yeah, I so mean, there is a there is that. a lot of history of of people winning, losing Iowa, it's still winning the nomination. Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz won Iowa, and if you remember, two thousand eight, Huckabee won Iowa, although Obama won Iowa, mm-hmm. so um, it does matter. But the so um, Trump went down to Iowa, uh, and uh, he was asked about DeSantis. Uh, this is at the Iowa State Fair, which I've had the chance to go to. It's quite quite an affair. But uh, here's DeSantis. Uh, I mean, uh, Trump talking about DeSantis at the Iowa State Fair. Mr. President, Governor DeSantis is here today, too. Do you have a message for him? They're in a very small crowd. Careful, careful, careful. We only had a few people show up. It's a big difference. But he'll he'll report it accurately. And say say hello to the great lady. Do you have any concern from the support he's getting from Iowa legislators? We've gotten great support. We have with us uh, most of the Congress people from Florida. Uh, We have... I mean, more importantly than anything right now, I guess we're up 50 points in Iowa, 5-0. We're up uh, tremendously in Iowa and every place else. Too. Is there anything extra you're doing to um, hopefully win no, the Iowa no. We did a job for Iowa that nobody could do the farm places. I mean, we have, uh, you take a look at the kind of money, we took in $28 billion from China and gave that to our farmers, so all over the country. So uh, they like Trump and I like them. So, yeah, I, and I listened to some interviews that reporters did uh, with people at the State Fair about why they like Trump, and they mentioned his farm policies, the tariffs, uh, which is a whole other segment, I guess. Uh, but he went straight at DeSantis, and DeSantis had his own, um, you know, he's been down there a lot. Uh, part of what they're asking him is DeSantis, the conventional wisdom is that DeSantis is, is overperforming with kind of like local party brass like the heads of the local parties, et cetera. And in this case, they asked him about state legislators who like him. DeSantis also uh, is cozy with the governor of Iowa, and he did an event with the governor um, at which he was heckled. Uh, This might not come across perfectly in audio, but let's go to this clip. Uh, This is DeSantis trying to do an interview at the Iowa State Fair with the governor of Iowa while Trump supporters uh, are just chiming in from the audience. I always understood you have an opportunity to work hard, get the most out of your God-given ability. And yet nobody has been held accountable in the federal government for their disastrous lockdown policies. We're going to bring a reckoning to that so that this never happens to our country ever again. So the governor had to actually stop at various points and and scold her own voters, the audience. Uh, There also was a banner that flew above, uh, I think the Trump team put it together, it said, Be Likeable Ron. Um, Jason, I don't even know. I don't don't know if there's a takeaway from any of this. It's just, uh, I I kind of wish this was closer. Well, I'll tell you, well, yeah, because, you know, Trump is like a horrible, awful person and DeSantis is just trying as hard as possible to be more horrible and awful, maybe, but he isn't Trump. Like So, you know, like we all, Team Democracy wishes that Trump was not as successful as he is. But I think what's interesting about this, is just as an observer, is that, you know, Trump is not only the front runner, like he's essentially the incumbent in the primary, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean... It's a rare, yeah, I mean, it's happened historically, but it's rare for somebody to lose uh, and run again. Right. Um, so, like, yeah. when it comes to who we choose, like, he was, he's he's the incumbent in that, like, when it comes to getting the presidential nomination for the Republicans, like, he's done it the last two times, and he's basically running for renomination, right? So, that yeah. makes him basically the incumbent, which makes it so interesting that there are still hordes of people who will go out and be what are functionally political insurgents, right? Like you you just got people going out and disrupting events and doing. So it is very odd that you have a guy who is basically the establishment in the party. And yet at the same time, he is the anti-establishment figure. Um, And that at the end of the day is both why it's incredibly unlikely that he's unseated 
as the as the nominee because when you are the establishment and the anti-establishment, there ain't a whole lot of room left to fight you. But it's also why he is so dangerous as a nominee, more so than we realize, because he doesn't play by the rules, uh, as we know, like as many courts or many prosecutors have attested to now. Um, and that means it's it's like if Ron DeSantis is the nominee, you you don't have to rewrite the playbook on how to run for re-election if you're Joe Biden uh, or if you're a candidate for the U.S. Senate and you're having to run in that environment. But but you have to rewrite the playbook every time to run against Trump because his people are just not above showing up and disrupting the comments of the governor of their state. Uh, right. So, yeah, I mean, and trolling and like having a banner that just says be likable. And so that's what I take from that. Well, uh, I have one other video to show you that I think Honestly, I think did you did you know about this before I texted it to you? No, I didn't even see you text that. I, I, oh, I, I texted that. this to you uh, as soon as I saw it. Okay, because I, I thought you would. I want to remind our audience that we were early on this Vivek thing, Vivek yeah. Ramaswamy. We've been talking about him for a while. He's now pulling second in the most recent polls I saw uh, in the national oh, field, wow. which is insane. Uh, and so uh, he decided to uh, give a performance at the Iowa State Fair. Let's go to this clip. Loud, he opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's joking how everybody's joking now. The clocks run out. Time's up. Over blouse. <laughs> I rarely chime so in. So suffice it to say, Vivek Ramaswamy did lose yourself at the end of his Q and A. Yes. Uh, so well, okay. How do we break this down? I have something to say about this. Uh -huh. There are kind of two camps of politicians that I've dealt with at Arena. Um, you mentioned at the beginning, I've, I've helped a lot of candidates. There are people who were really cool and the popular person in school, and part of their appeal as candidates are they're the popular, right? You think of Wes Moore, you think of Barack Obama, Cory Booker. You get these people who are just like cool, and part of their appeal mm -hmm. is people like them, campaigning comes easy to them. Then you have a lot of people, and I would say this is probably the majority of people who run for office. I would say you're a cool person, Jason, and you know I got to be careful because yeah, you. I appreciate that. Uh, no, I but, appreciate that. I was somewhere in the middle. I was like sometimes cool, and I was never not cool, but I was sometimes just people are like, oh yeah, that guy's there. It, so then there are the vast majority of candidates out there, uh, and and I I would say no offense, but it is offensive to these candidates. What I'm about mm -hmm. to say, which is. The people who are just really, really not cool and part of their sort of their their complex that makes them decide to run for office and go through the gauntlet of running for office is like this deep seated just like wounds that they have of being nerds or outcasts or whatever. And when I look at Vivek Ramaswamy rapping Eminem to a crowd at the Iowa State Fair, I can't help but think this guy is a kind of a loser. I don't know what else to say. Like he's a guy who like clearly has some deep-seated issues going back to high school, maybe middle school. Uh I can't imagine what would make him decide to do that. Um but he's the kind of guy who I guess doesn't have the kind of staff who he's going to step in and you were talking about like Joe Biden staff like needing to to tell him the uncomfortable truth. Somebody needs to tell Vivek the uncomfortable truth about this performance. Well, okay, let me play devil's advocate. Just oh my God. for fun, okay? Oh Which is that he didn't do a horrible job. He didn't do a good job of performing it, you know? But it wasn't completely cringy. But it what is it? a little bit cringy. But what is it, is what I'm saying. Like, it's not I like... Think, here, well, here's it, my point. Here's my argument, is that if, you have to, if you're a Republican at the Iowa State Fair who is considering Vivek Ramaswamy, it has to be like, you've got to be somebody who is attracted to the idea of the next generation, something different, somebody who delivers the same sort of hateful language and lines and, and intolerance, but does it. And, you know, we had, I forget um, the young woman's name who came on the show and talked about uh, gender washing, where they, where the Republicans will have a candidate who says all of the same hateful and terrible things, but it'll be a woman. And so it seems not quite as harsh because it's a woman. And, and you know, here you have an Indian, I think he's Indian American, right? An Indian American guy um, who is young. Those two things are not considered typically Republican. And now he's, you know, rapping, which 
is way off the chart of things that are considered typically Republican, particularly conservatives at the Iowa State Fair. So is it some brilliant strategy to actually be different in a way that, you know, none of the others have been able to become different? I don't know. Oof, okay. I don't think well, so, but I wanted to say those words and see what would happen. <laughs> I've had enough of the GOP field, Jason. Let's grab an oar. Okay, absolutely. So uh, for Gravenor, um, what I was thinking we would talk about this week, just real quickly, um, is uh, what's going on in Hawaii and, and in Maui um, with the horrible tragedy, the fires, the people who have lost their lives. And uh, it's just an opportunity for all of us to try and do something about it to Gravenor and, and be supportive of the efforts there. And I was looking up different causes. I think any, you know, if you want to choose your own cause to give to, the one I found that hit home with me is the Hawaii Community Foundation. They have a Maui Strong Fund. Um, to me, that made the most sense because it is, uh, it's local and there's really no doubt uh, whether or not you know, it's local and whether or not the money's going to stay there. And so it, I found several places where it was recommended. So I would just encourage people, you know, look, this show is about us being able to make arguments and make inroads in red states, but it is also really just about trying to help people in blue states or red states. And so Iowa is in need of that help right now. Yeah, terrible. So yeah. with that said, one one for us. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm over go. in Maine. Great state. Uh, I'm in Booth Bay Harbor. Maine. I haven't been to Maine in about a decade, but uh, came up here because the there's you know New England in the summer because you were up in Boston recently. New England in the summer mm -hmm. is beautiful. Oh, it's amazing. I don't go near it in the winter time, but when it's nice out, love it. One of the best places in the world in the summertime. So I'm just up here enjoying enjoying life. About to go sailing after this. Yeah, and I'm training I, I, for the the Pura Vida Open that tra that tennis match where if I lose, I get a tattoo on my butt. So I'm. Okay, when is that? Progress. That is uh, September 9th. Yeah, I was going to say, it's coming up. Okay. Uh, I mean, I love it. My Maine. game is getting tight. Once. I'm getting tight. Um, I'm actually doing a legit, my first legit tennis tournament the weekend before that in Brooklyn. Oh. There's like a, uh, the Prospect Park is having a, uh, a tennis tournament that I'm entering. It'll be good practice for the purview to open. Um, but I'm entering like the intermediate level uh, part of it. So it'll be interesting. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, good for you. I, as you know, I'm a big supporter of competitive sports at all ages. Yeah. Uh, so, um, well, I, first, real quick, the one for us is I'm going to mention again that the paperback for Invisible Storm, uh, my book, has come out uh, and people can get it uh, wherever you get your books. Um, but really, what I want to talk about is today is actually uh, mine and Diana's 20th wedding anniversary. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, which is which is very cool. And I've been, you know, really reflecting on this uh, today and yesterday. And, I, you know, yesterday was like just a day, you know, I love my wife every day. Um, but yesterday, I was just feeling an awful lot of love. And there were two moments, one, where, um, as you know, um, the Raoufi family, the uh, Afghan family that we've been a part of helping them get out of Afghanistan because of our connection to them from my service, but also uh, getting them here to the United States. And now they live, um, and have for the last eight weeks, six minutes from our house here in Kansas city have become part of our family. And, uh, my wife has just really, really jumped in to, uh, doing things with the Rufi family. Um, in fact, you know, yesterday, uh, she organized, she organizes every year in our neighborhood, um, along with a couple of neighbors, just a water balloon fight with the neighbor kids and with our kids. And this year we went and got the Rufi kids. And, they, and so it was like a really sweet moment where my wife had, you know, and I had told Raheem Rufi, the head of the family, when he was still stuck in Afghanistan and, and I was trying to help him get out, I said to him, one day our kids will play together in my backyard. And so, you know, and just my wife making that happen, it made me feel a lot of love. But then a couple hours later, we were at True's baseball game. And, you know, when Diana and I were dating uh, many, many years ago now, um, and even before we had kids, like she never, and this is probably true for a lot of women, uh, she never saw herself as like, and she, like, I always would like, just couldn't wait to be a dad. I don't think she's been a person that's like, I can't wait to be a mom. Um, but she always is like, I know we're going to have kids, but like, it was not a part of her future identity or anything like that, but she's this incredible mom, but she's also this, you know, she, she's a, a, a great speaker and a businesswoman and she does all these things. But there was a moment yesterday at True's baseball game where um, she's sitting there with Bella on her lap and uh, True was like, 
sliding into third. He was running into third. And I heard Diana louder than anybody else yell down, down, <laughs> like top of her lungs, like tell, yelling at true to slide. Uh, and then like the ball was overthrown. She was like, go, go, you know? And, and it was just really funny because I just immediately thought back to, uh, you know, my wife who I remember once looking at a woman who was wearing at my military intelligence school graduation, there was a spouse there wearing a black shirt and there was a toddler that was eating Cheetos and it was like oh all over God. her. And my, and Diana was like at least two more years before we have kids, at least two more years. And, and now she's like full on travel baseball mom and, and like really into it. And uh, anyway, so I'm feeling a lot of love as I am every day for well, congratulations, for twenty years. So. My goodness, uh, and the the book you mentioned at the start of this, I, I made this point when it first came out. But it's as much a love story as it is anything else. It's a really that's true touching book. And and Diana actually has, uh, she she for those of you who haven't read the book yet, Diana kind of weighs in throughout the book on Jason's account of mm -hmm. of things. And it's I've never seen a book do it like that, and it's really well executed. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it very much. And uh, this has been fun, as always. Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.